It's May the 16th, 1899, and Camille Cecily Holland stands in her parlour in her new home, Moat House Farm. The name comes from the Waterfield Ditch that runs all around the house, making an island. Camille has been busy decorating and furnishing the house. She has covered a large, dark wooden sideboard in ornaments and trinkets. In between the photographs and watercolours on the walls, she has hung large mirrors to bring in the lights and combat the gloom. This is the first home that she has ever owned. She used to stay with her aunt in London for many years, but when she passed away, Camille inherited her fortune as sole heiress. She's only been living here for a few weeks with a man she describes as her sweetheart, Samuel Herbert Dougal. When they'd met, he introduced himself as Captain Dougal. Camille had entertained him in her drawing room and romance had blossomed. At five foot eleven, with large grey eyes and full beard, he's a fine figure of a man. Now, in her late fifties, it's a strange time to start a life with a suitor after having been single all her life. Camille looks well for her age. Many people think she is younger. Maybe that's because she isn't always truthful about exactly how old she really is. She has golden hair and grey-blue eyes. She stands at just under five foot three, but the little heel on her shoes makes her more like five foot four. Camille is happy to mend and re-wear her clothes, but she insists on paying for a well-made pair of new shoes. She had hoped that her life with Samuel would be a new beginning, a chance for her to finally find love. But recently, they've been fighting more and more. Samuel accuses her of being close with money. Just a few days ago, they'd had another row. He was cross that she had bought the farm in her name, not in his name as he wanted. She had to cash in £1,500 from the stocks and shares that she had invested in with the money her aunt left her. That amount of money would take decades for a skilled man to earn. But why should she let Dougal have the deeds in his name? It was her money after all, and she's always been so careful. Especially since she's not actually married to Dougal. In fact, he's already married to someone else. As a lifelong member of the Catholic Church, Camille is going against her beliefs by committing adultery. But living this way was never her intent. She met Dougal through correspondence in a matrimonial agency journal when Camille had advertised for her husband. She just didn't think it would be someone else's husband. By the time he admitted to her that he already had a wife, she was already under his spell. She could leave, she supposes, but maybe this is the only chance she has to spend her life with anyone other than her little faithful King Charles Spaniel, Jacko, who is constantly by her side. Dougal persuaded Camille that they should live as husband and wife. He insists on calling her Mrs. Dougal in front of other people. Is that to save her blushes? But they don't see other people very often. Moat House Farm is in a secluded spot in the small village of Clavering in Essex. The remote farmhouse was very run down when Camille bought it four months ago. It had been empty for years, and they had to stay with a local landlady, Mrs. Wiskin, while it was being renovated. Camille thinks back to Mrs. Wiskin's words. 
It is a very quaint old place, dating from the time of Elizabeth, and as lonely a building as you will come across in a day's walk. In fact, Camille had complained it was too far from the village, to which Dougal had replied, that's its charm. We should be able to live together, away from any inquisitive strangers. He'd made it sound romantic and she'd agreed. They don't want people prying into their life together. But it hasn't been plain sailing. Sometimes Dougal drinks too much and Camille suspects there may be other women. In fact, she's had to get a new maid because the last one left abruptly after she claimed Dougal had assaulted her. The new maid, Florence, has been working here for two days. At 9pm on the evening of May the 16th, the two women retire to bed. But it's not long after that, Camille hears screaming. Dougal is trying to get into Florence's bedroom. He's nearly wrenched the handle from the door. The poor girl sounds terrified. Camille rushes to her aid. When she sees her mistress, young Florence passes out. Camille berates Dougal. She can smell whiskey on him. She's furious, but Dougal makes light of it. She's only a kid. You surely don't think I was serious. Camille sends Dougal to bed, and when Florence comes round, she tells her mistress this is not the first time he has tried it on. Camille is devastated. What has she done? Given her life to this man who drinks too much and forces himself on the servant girls, a man who demands money and criticizes her for not giving him enough. She's tired of the drinking and arguing over money. He can't or won't even marry her. And now this? Camille takes Florence back to her room and the women spend the night together for safety. The next day, Camille can't stop crying. She begs Florence not to leave her. But Florence has already written to her mother to come and rescue her from the isolated farm and the monster of a man who lives there. But the two women don't yet realize just what a monster Samuel Dougal really is. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It's the evening of Friday the 19th of May. Camille tells Florence that she's going out with Dougal for a ride on the pony and trap, and she won't be long. It's a lovely night. The moon is bright and the air is warm. Dougal seems to be in a better mood and Camille is trying to make the best of things. Become 8.30pm, Dougal arrives home alone. Florence is in the kitchen, completing her day's chores. Where's the mistress, she asks. Gone to London, Dougal replies. What? Gone to London and left me here all alone, she says, panic evident in her voice. Never mind, she's coming back in a little while, I'm going to meet her. Then he tells her he's going out to feed the horse. Twenty minutes later, he returns and says he is going to meet Camille from the train. At twenty to ten, Dougal is back. There is no sight of her mistress and Florence didn't hear the pony and trap. Something doesn't seem right. Her agitation grows. Dougal goes out for the third time, saying he will visit the station to see if Camille has returned on the next train, but returns alone yet again. He says, I suppose she will come on the 12 o'clock train. That is the one I expected her on. He then suggests Florence goes to bed as she scurries upstairs, terrified to be alone in the house with Dougal. She barricades her door again. She spends the night fully dressed, sitting by the window. She's ready to make her escape in case he decides, with the mistress away, she is fair game. The next morning, when Florence goes down to the kitchen, Dougal tells her, I have just had a letter from Mrs. Dougal. She says she's going away for a short holiday. It's only seven in the morning. The post doesn't arrive until 8 o'clock. How could he have possibly already received a letter? Something is terribly wrong. But not long afterwards, to her great relief, her mother arrives and Florence leaves the dismal house for good. But as she rides away, wrapped in her mother's arms, the questions remain unanswered. Where is Camille Holland? And why would she go on holiday? without taking any luggage. It is March 1903. No one has seen or heard from Camille since she disappeared four years ago. Now, in his mid-fifties, Samuel Dougal has settled into the role of a country squire, attending church regularly and donating large sums of money to the parish to help with the upkeep and renovate the churchyard. Dougal is not afraid to show off his wealth, He is one of the first people in Essex to own a motor car. There are questions about where the money has come from and why his wife has left him. When people ask about Camille, Dougal tells them that she's gone to live abroad. If they think that it's strange that such a quiet and unadventurous woman would go on such a voyage, especially in her later years, they don't comment. Gossip is rife in the locality about Dougal's behavior, his drinking and womanizing. 
According to some, there have been many mistresses at Moat Farm. His treatment of his maids has long been the talk of the local villages. In fact, there's even been rumours that he's been seen on one of his meadows teaching young women to ride bicycles in the nude. Certainly, the servants seem to come and go with alarming speed. When one goes, Dougal places adverts in the local press for a replacement. I am in want of someone to look to my wants during the absence of my wife, who is frequently away from home. Should like one of a cheerful disposition and young. The rumor mill is driven into further overdrive when a woman and her children move to the moat farm. Dougal claims it is his widowed daughter and his grandchildren. But the truth is, it's his wife, Sarah White. No wonder he claims she's his daughter. He's over twice her age. They had married in Dublin in 1889 against her family's wishes. They lived there for a while before Dougal came back to England to try to find work. Instead, he found an easier way to make money by manipulating and sponging off vulnerable older women. Sarah is well aware of the sort of man he is, brutal and charming in equal measure. In fact, they have split up and reunited a number of times over his behavior. Most women would be horrified to find their husband living with another woman, but maybe Sarah is used to forgiving his cheating ways. She remains at the farm with Dougal and their children for three years until the final straw, when she begs Dougal to tell her the truth about what happened to Camille. It causes a huge argument with her violent spouse. Finally tired of the beatings and Dougal's womanizing, Sarah takes the children and leaves, but not without taking many of Camille's clothes and items of jewelry. With his wife out of the way, Dougal is now free to turn his attention to the two maids who are working for him. They're sisters, but it doesn't stop him sleeping with both of them. When the younger one gives birth to his son when she's 18 years old, Dougal refuses to pay child support. When she takes him to court, the goings-on at Moat Farm are brought to the attention of the authorities. It becomes clear that Camille and Dougal were not actually married and that he is in fact penniless, having lost his army pension after being convicted of fraud. The maid tells the court that the source of Dougal's income are checks forged in Camille's name. She states, you'll be hung next for the killing of that woman. After the trial, rumors escalate in the village that Dougal might have in fact killed Camille. A local police constable, James Drew, calls to Moat Farm. Dougal invites him in and appears unfazed by the visit. PC Drew sees that many of Camille's belongings are still at the house. He also notices that some of her recent mail from the bank has been opened, but Camille is nowhere to be seen. Dougal sticks to his story that she's abroad. So who opened her mail and why? Suspicious, PC Drew contacts his superintendent. He writes, since the last two cases at the bench from Moat House, it roused people to talk again. 
and it is now said it was Miss Holland's money that bought Moat House Farm, and people think he now must have done away with her and buried her. The letter is passed to the Chief Constable of the Essex Constabulary, who sends it to Detective Inspector Elias Bower of Scotland Yard. An expert in forgery and fraud, Bower studies the letter with his bright, close-set brown eyes. He contacts the Piccadilly branch of the National and Provincial Bank, where Camille holds her accounts. The manager tells him that 10 days after she went missing, a letter arrived claiming to be from Camille. He requested a checkbook to be sent to Moat Farm. Nearly all of the checks had been cashed and Camille's account is depleted. Just a couple of hundred pounds remain. But the bank has one check remaining that wasn't cashed, one that is supposedly signed by Camille. Bauer needs to see that check. If the signature is genuine, then maybe she's alive and well somewhere. But if the signature is forged, then what has happened to Camille? Greed, revenge, lust. Murder investigations often pinpoint why someone has been killed, but not necessarily who did the killing. Every Tuesday on Unsolved Murders, meet the victims, suspects, and investigators of the most notorious criminal cases in history. Part traumatic podcast, part old-time radio show, Unsolved Murders transports you to the scene of a crime, its ensuing investigation, and every attempt to solve the case. You'll soon discover that the murder isn't always the most shocking part of the story. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify. With no evidence of Camille's demise, D.I. Bauer focuses on getting Dougal on a charge of forgery. That way you can get a warrant to search the farm to see what's really going on. At the bank, he discovers that large sums of money have been transferred into Dougal's accounts, nearly £6,000 and even the Moat Farm deeds are now in his name. Bauer also believes the one remaining check is a forgery. The letter that came with it, purporting to be from Camille, excuses the fact that her handwriting looks a little different, as she has hurt her wrist. Liaising between the Essex Constabulary and Scotland Yard, D.I. Bauer begins digging into the secrets behind the Moat Farm mystery. It turns out that Dougal, famous in the army for his award-winning administration skills and penmanship, is already known to Scotland Yard. Eight years previously, in 1895, he had served 12 months at Pentonville for forging cheques that he stole in the names of the Commander-in-Chief of the Forces in Ireland, Lord Wolsey. Dougal was sentenced to hard labour, but managed to fake a suicide attempt and saw out the majority of his time in Cane Hill Asylum, a much easier confinement. The hospital records show that the doctor in charge of Dougal described him as evasive and furtive, very reserved, shifty and strange. When Dougal was released, he was heard to say that once you get into the asylum, you can keep there by breaking a plate or two occasionally. 
Bauer sees this as evidence that the man is a manipulative liar. Outside of his forgery scheme, Dougal also has a murky history with women. Chillingly, it appears that his wives have a tendency of dying before their time. He joined the Royal Engineers at the age of 19 in 1866, probably to get out of trouble for being in debt. It was here he gained his reputation for being a womanizer and was treated twice for syphilis. His superiors gave him a new post in Flintshire, Wales, in the hope that he might settle. Whilst there, he met and married his first wife, Martha Griffith, in 1869. Their marriage lasted 16 years, and they had four children. But Dougal continued his philandering ways and also fathered several children with other women. There were reports of him drinking heavily and beating his wife. When the family was stationed in Nova Scotia in Canada in 1885, Martha fell ill very suddenly and died. Dougal claimed that she had been suffering from tuberculosis. However, the coroner's report stated that her death had been from very sudden and painful stomach aches, symptoms not usually associated with TB. Could he have poisoned her? The army granted him leave of absence to visit family in England, and when he returned to Canada two months later, he had brought with him a new wife, a young, wealthy Irish woman named Mary Herbeta Boyd. Dougal's colleagues were shocked. In October, less than two months after her arrival, Mary also complained of stomach pains, started vomiting, and died suddenly. Dougal blamed bad oysters. He'd been widowed twice in four months. Bauer then discovers that when Dougal returned to England with his company, he brought with him yet another love interest, a single woman with her own money called Bessie Stedman. Dougal tried to forge a marriage certificate so that the army would cover the cost of Bessie's passage back to England, but his plan didn't work and he had to pay the ticket himself. Bauer calls her in for questioning. When interviewed about Dougal, Bessie explained that after the promise of marriage came to nothing but violence and drunken threats to kill her, she escaped back to Canada. Bessie says, he was a monster and I was one of his victims. But Detective Bauer finds out that there's more. In 1887, Dougal was out of the army, going from job to job and living and having children with a young widow called Marianne Payne. They went into the licensed trade together, taking over the Royston Crow pub in Hertfordshire. Whilst there, it appears that Dougal became bored with the humdrum routine and applied to the home office for the position of hangman. Less than two years later, Dougal was tried for arson after having taken out two sets of insurance on the pub and twice attempting to burn it down. The second time he succeeded. He was charged with trying to defraud the insurance company, but he was acquitted due to a lack of witnesses. However, he lost his license and his macabre hope of becoming an executioner. Marion left him, citing cruelty. Undeterred, Dougal moved to Dublin. This was when he met and married Sarah. When Dougal couldn't find work in Ireland, he moved back to London 
promising to send for Sarah and their two children when he was set up. Bauer now has a full picture of the sort of man he is dealing with. Samuel Dougal tells convincing lies, commits fraud, and takes what doesn't belong to him. He also uses his charm to seduce and leech off vulnerable women. Bauer finds out from police records that Miss Booty, a spinster in her 50s, had made a complaint against Dougal nearly 10 years previously. When interviewed, she tells officers that it was a chance meeting outside the Bank of England in August 1894 that brought her and Dougal together. He told her he was a widower and they became a couple. She adopted his surname and they pretended they were married. Bauer can't help but wonder at the persuasive abilities of the man. Dougal encouraged Miss Booty to rent a large house with a lake nearby. He even convinced her to cash in her shares in the Grand Hotel in Brighton. But worse still, Bauer finds out Dougal brought Sarah and the children over from Dublin to live in the house. Sarah took her place in the marital bed and Miss Booty was treated like a servant by the whole family. When she complained, Dougal waved a dagger and a pistol at her and threatened to kill her. Miss Booty ran away from him to a neighbor's in fear of her life. Later, she hired men to retrieve all her belongings from the house, although some of them had been taken and hidden by Dougal and Sarah. Dougal was charged with theft. However, he once again evaded conviction and was acquitted. It's obvious to Bauer that there's a pattern. Dougal has a history of fraud and theft. He's threatened and mistreated women. Some have even died under mysterious circumstances. And now, it looks as though the same fate may well have befallen Camille. To find out more, Dougal starts talking to witnesses. Mrs. Wiskin, the landlady, is particularly upset because Camille did not say goodbye to her. They'd become very close in the months that the couple had stayed at her boarding house. Camille even used to call her mother dear. And when Camille's dog Jacko turned up out of the blue at Mrs. Wiskin's house, she became even more concerned. Surely Camille would have taken her beloved pet with her wherever she went. Another witness is the seamstress in Camille's employ before she moved in with Dougal. She tells officers that before the couple went away for a weekend, Camille had asked her to make a nice dressing gown, but then she'd begged the seamstress to go with her on the trip and said she thought it might mean her death. She asked Camille, why'd you marry the man if you're afraid of him? Camille replied, I'm sick of boarding houses and as I'm getting old, I want someone to look after me. She also tells police that another time, Camille had become tired of Dougal's manipulative ways. She told the seamstress that Dougal wanted her to withdraw all her money and invest it in his name. She said, we've parted. I found out he doesn't want me, only my money. But unfortunately for Camille, Dougal persuaded her to come back to him. And less than six months later, she'd vanished without a trace. Detective Inspector Bauer now has all he needs to get a warrant. Police take possession of Moat Farm, 
There, officers find Dougal's written plans to travel to Ostend and then on to Europe. It appears Constable Drew's visit spooked him, and he's now attempting to flee the country. Certainly not the actions of an innocent man. Dougal's travel partner is the third sister of the two maids that he was sleeping with. Obviously undeterred by his treatment of her sisters, she has run away with him and is now pregnant. Dougal has been taking huge sums of cash out of his various accounts, and the banks have reported this suspicious activity to the police. Luckily, it doesn't take long for them to catch up with a fugitive. At the Bank of England, Dougal is recognized and the police are informed. He makes a run for it, but the officers catch him. When Dougal's greatcoat is opened, he has an astonishing hoard of wealth about his person. More than 57 items of jewelry, brooches, rings, watches, earrings, and a string of pearls. It looks as though Dougal has packed for his escape. Whilst Dougal is in custody, a thorough search of the house ensues. The floorboards are taken up and the moat is drained. The police officers sleep in the house and make their meals in the kitchen. Camille's watercolors, ornaments, and family photographs surround them, ghostly reminders of the life she was building for herself. Outside, officers dig in various places to see if they can find any trace of Camille. Five weeks pass and nothing has come to light. Detective Inspector Bauer goes to the farm to try to steer the investigation to its conclusion. The sight that greets him is astounding. Due to press coverage, a vast crowd of over 6,000 people, mainly women, have gathered at Moat Farm to observe the police search. Vendors have set up stalls to sell oranges, nuts and ginger beer. They shout their wares to the crowd as the police continue their work. Others are selling souvenir postcards and photographs of the house and the land with the many holes that have been dug by the police. Some of the sightseers have brought their newfangled Kodak cameras with them. It's a hot day and groups of men are sweating as they continue to search the property. Through the noise and the chaos, one of the officers notices Jacko, Camille's dog, whimpering at the side of a ditch. His persistent sounds draw attention and the police decide to investigate. What is bothering the dog? They use their spades to uproot the young plants and dig down about four feet. After a few hours, the men decide there's nothing there, but Jacko is still whining. As the officers are just about to begin to start filling the ditch again, one of them notices something. A shoe. They delicately begin to remove the surrounding soil. It appears that the faithful little dog has finally found his mistress. The eye bower is immediately informed and a huge awning is placed around the area. A great excitement passes through the crowd. Photographs are taken of the awning and sold to the onlookers. The officers work carefully and soon they have unearthed a badly decomposed body. They carefully carry it into the conservatory and lay it on a table for examination. Based on the corpse's clothing, it's clear that it's a woman, but the decomposition makes immediate identification difficult. 
However, witnesses identify the garments and jewellery on the body as belonging to Camille. Mr. Mould, Camille's shoemaker from Edgware Road, London, is brought in to examine the shoes. The letter M in the brass tacks on the heel identify them as a pair that he has made. Mr. Mould only has one customer with shoes of this kind, a very small and dainty size two, and that is Miss Camille Holland. Now they have found her. The next job is to identify just how she died. The body is examined by Professor Pepper, an expert from the Home Office and Divisional Police Surgeons. Professor Pepper tells D.I. Bauer that a revolver bullet entered her head behind her right ear, fracturing the inside of her cranium on the left side. It is still in her skull. His opinion is that the bullet must have caused immediate insensibility, which would have continued until death. Now, Detective Inspector Bauer has to prove that Dougal fired this fatal shot. He summons a gunmaker and renowned expert from London who is frequently employed by Scotland Yard, Mr. Edwin Churchill. Churchill conducts experiments using sheep's heads bought from the butcher's shop next door to his gun shop on the Strand. He fires bullets into the heads and compares gunpowder marks, penetration, and damage done to the victim's skull. Because Camille's flesh has disappeared over the last four years, the usual evidence of a close-range shot is not found. But from his experiments, Churchill was able to show that the bullet that killed Camille had been fired from a distance of six to 12 inches from her head, which means that the wound was not self-inflicted and she had most likely been murdered. Police officers find a revolver and a box of 34 unused 32 caliber ammunition at the farm, the same type of bullet as was found in Camille's skull. Bauer now has all the evidence he needs to charge Dougal with her murder. Dougal's trial begins on the 22nd of June, 1903, at Shire Hall, Chelmsford. The charge is that Samuel Herbert Dougal, on the 19th of May, 1899, did feloniously, willfully, and of his malice aforethought, kill and murder Camille Cecile Holland at Clavering. The Crown argues that Samuel took Camille out for a ride in the pony and trap. He then proceeded to shoot her in the head and bury her body in a prepared grave in the grounds of the farm. The jury takes less than an hour to convict Dougal of Camille's murder. He is executed at Chelmsford Prison at 8am on Tuesday the 14th of July, 1903, and buried in the grounds. Only his initials and a number on the wall nearby mark the grave of one of Essex's most notorious murderers. Camille is finally laid to rest at Saffron Walden. Her gravestone reads, Camille Cecile Holland, who died in Clavering in distressing circumstances. It also bears the inscription, Nunc demum resquiate in pace. Now, finally, 
you can rest in peace. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential, it's June the 8th, 1946, as London celebrates the end of World War II with a victory parade filled with pomp and ceremony. Something far more sinister is happening in the leafy suburb of Belgravia. In a house in Chester Square, owned by the exiled King of Greece, George II, Elizabeth McLinden has just been shot. Solving her murder will mean one of Scotland Yard's best detectives has to put his faith in the groundbreaking work of forensic scientists. Can the single bullet found beside the body be enough to catch the killer? Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boiro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by James Benmore. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Jacob Booth. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Jacob Booth. Music by Oliver Baines and Dorothy. McCauley. Lack of evidence, poor police work, clever criminals. Whatever the reason, some murders remain unsolved. Every Tuesday, Unsolved Murders explores the facts of a real-life cold case. Part dramatic podcast, part old-time radio show. Join the ensemble cast of actors as they take you on an exhilarating journey through the crime scene and its ensuing investigation. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify.